Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and as always, it's my great pleasure to be here with you to study God's Word. You know, it makes my heart happy to know that you are so committed to studying God's truths. My prayer for each of you is that you never walk away from God's Word without just a few seeds of His truth to plant deep into your heart. Because you know, then and only then are you gonna be able to follow that advice we get and all those romance movies, especially on Hallmark, when you hear them say, just follow your heart. That's terrible advice. Because see, without God's word planted in your heart, that well-meaning piece of advice is a disaster. Scripture tells us this. It says the heart has so many issues. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? This week, we looked at 1 Samuel 18 and 19, and we saw one of those ways that our heart can become sick, and that's jealousy. See, a jealous heart, if it's left unchecked, it leads us into sinful actions. And if it's left unchecked for very long, ultimately, it leads to destruction. It's destruction of relationships with God, family, friends, coworkers. It can lead to destruction of our health mental, spiritual, physical health, and it can lead to destruction of a peaceful and content, blessed life. Look at James 3, 14 and 16 on your verse sheet. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And boy, did we see that this week in 18 and 19. You know, I think if God had an instruction manual on how to battle jealousy, I think these two verses, 18 and 19, could actually be called Battling Jealousy 101. These are the basics, and they're plopped right down in the middle of David's early years. In the story of David's early years, God in his divine wisdom, he gave us three men to show us exactly how to do it, what not to do, as we guard against jealousy and what to do as we we battle jealousy. Now, a week ago, we had the opportunity to study one of God's Bible studies, classic Bible stories. It's David and Goliath. You know, we saw this young David, he goes out and he uses everything that God had taught him to this point and he takes down this massive giant. He takes down Goliath. And in the last few verses of chapter 17, we see that Saul is kind of impressed by this. And he says, bring David to me. And he says to David, whose son are you, young man? I think it's interesting that here he's saying, whose son are you, young man, now? When before he went to fight David, he said, young boy. He sees him a little bit different now. But instead of boldly boasting, we see David, and he could have, we see him acting humble. What he could have done, he could have carried the head of Goliath in there and said, I am David, the slayer of Goliath. I have taken him down. I've cut off his head and the Philistines are running away with their tails between their legs. And guess what, Saul? I'm about to take your job. But not David. That's not what he says. See, David just looks at him and he says, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And that's where we end up right here today as we pick up in 18. We're going to start by looking at what to do when we guard against jealousy. If you haven't already opened your Bibles, I want you to do so. Go to Samuel at 1 Samuel 18. Today, we're going to kind of be skipping around, so you're going to have to stay on point and be ready to move. Um, we're not going to go straight through it. 
But we're going to start in 18. I'm just going to read the first two verses of 18. As soon as he had finished speaking, he's talking about David, speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Okay, so here we are, right at the beginning, we see Jonathan, he's just heard David respond to King Saul's question in humility. And coupled, that humility coupled with what he witnessed on the battlefield where David took down Goliath, it left Jonathan in awe of David. You know, in fact, right here, Jonathan is so impressed by David's humility after he killed Goliath that 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 giant, that he is, he's knit his soul to him. And it's a lasting impression on Jonathan. These two verses right here are the beginning of one of the greatest friendships ever recorded in the Bible. It's the friendship of Jonathan and David. Now to understand how extraordinary this friendship was, it's important that we understand a little bit more about Jonathan. We know some about David already. See, Jonathan is the eldest son of Saul and he was, he was the eldest son, which meant he was next in line for the crown. He was next in line to take the throne. But he was also a man of courage. He was loyal. He was wise. He was a man of integrity. And we know from what we've seen in the past of him, he was a man who trusted God and he obeyed God even when it was difficult. And he knew that all of those things would make him a great Israelite king. He had great potential Jonathan had so much potential to be Israel's greatest king. But because of his father's poor leadership skills brought on by his father's lack of faith in God and the disobedience of God's commands, Jonathan would never see that accomplished in his lifetime. Saul's rule was going to end. David had been appointed and anointed by God to be the next king of Israel, and it would be in God's appointed time. Keep all this in mind now. We're going to read the, first, the next three verses, starting at verse 3. I want you to think about who Jonathan is as we read this. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." Now, it's not clear whether Jonathan actually knew at this point that his father's rule over Israel is about to come, will be short-lived. He's also, it's, it's not known if he actually knew that David had been anointed as the next king of Israel. You know, the commentaries are kind of all over the place. Um, and when they do address it, it's either very vague or it would take a 12-week study in history to figure it out. But what we do know is this, and this is my two cents worth. I think that that rumor probably had started to spread. I don't think they could have kept that quiet. And of course, they didn't have social media. They didn't have 24-hour cable news announcing on it. It probably spread a little slower because of that. But I think at this point, it would have managed to start tickling the ears of those around Jonathan and Saul, or maybe Saul and Jonathan themselves. And we do know this, that since that time that Samuel declared that Saul would not continue as the king of Israel, Jonathan had witnessed two 
very important things. First, he had the chance to see his father's very poor leadership skills and his lack of obedience to God's commandments. And then he got to see David. He got to see David's tremendous character that was revealed when that vicious giant was attacking Israel. Now, Jonathan was able to see that David, the anointed king of Israel, was a man after God's own heart. And I think David, or Jonathan knew that that was a basis for why David was so courageous. That's what made David so confident, so obedient, and made him so humble. All of these things, by the way, are great characteristics of a, a wonderful leader. Knowing all this helps us to understand the significance and what we see in verses three and four of what Jonathan's doing. He first makes a covenant with David. It's important to note right here that Jonathan makes a covenant. He doesn't make a contract. There's a big difference here. He says it's, see, because a covenant is centered around an a purpose that they want to accomplish. And a contract, that purpose is here, and the individuals want to make sure that they're both going to get be, their interests are going to be um, cared for in this contract. They're more focused on their interests than they are on the purpose that they're trying to accomplish. In a covenant, those individuals now have more focus on the purpose they want to accomplish and less on their own interests. And that's where we are. See, Jonathan, the eldest son of the king of Israel and the rightful heir to the throne, made a covenant with David. He was not, he had less care concern of his own interests and more about what God's purpose was for Israel. And he made a covenant with David, the son of a lowly shepherd, but the son of the lowly shepherd was appointed by God and anointed to be the next king of Israel. And that's what he was willing to follow. And what Jonathan does next in these four verses reveal the depth of this commitment in this covenant. First, he gives David his robe. Now, by doing this, David was taking his princely robes, the royal robes, and he lays them down and he says, I give up my throne for you. I give up the rank that would come with that throne, the fame, the standing, all of it, I give up for you. The next thing Jonathan gives to David is his military uniform. Now, this is really significant, significant because if you recall, Jonathan was a great warrior. We learned a few weeks ago that he had won so many battles. And when he did it, he always did it in such a wise, strategic way. He was a wise warrior, a mighty warrior. So giving David his military uniform that he wore during those battles, that uniform that would have been a tremendous source of pride. It would have given him honor to, in front of everyone. He's giving it to David. That's significant. That's significant, not only because it shows the deep commitment to this friendship, it reveals Jonathan's true character. Remember, Jonathan was due to be the king after Saul, and that wasn't going to happen. And I believe that Jonathan had taken to heart the words of Samuel that was recorded in 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with your, all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Jonathan's covenant with David revealed that he trusted God's plan for his future completely. Instead of looking at David with this jealousy and envy and, and coveting what he had, he chose to trust God with his future. He was willing then to wholeheartedly serve God, no matter what that looked like in his future. Even if it meant giving up what was rightfully his from the start, 
whether it's a crown, a throne, medals, honor, he laid it all down to wholeheartedly serve God's plan in his life. By giving David his robe and uniform, uniform, military uniform, Jonathan showed that he wasn't only talking the talk, he was walking the walk. He said, I will obediently, obediently submit to God. And how do we know that he honors that? Well, we know this because if you skip ahead to 1 Samuel 19, if you'll look there, go one, one chapter up ahead and go to verse 1. It says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan's son and, and to all his servants, and they, should kill, they told him he should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where, he, where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David because he's not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life and he took, he took his life in his hands and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. So here we are. This records, um, this is recorded after several attempts have been made by Saul on David's life. And we're going to look at all those in just a few minutes. But if Jonathan had been a jealous man and was really not planning to stand by that covenant... I mean, this would have been the perfect opportunity right here. He could have jumped on his dad's uh, crazy bandwagon and he could have tried to eliminate David. He could have secured the crown for himself and all would have been well. But that's not true to Jonathan's character at all. He was a man who had proven that he was willing to submit to God's will. So instead, he did what, what all he could to restore that relationship between Saul and David. And I think he showed that strategic wisdom, that wisdom that he had on the battlefield, because out of a love for his friend, he pleaded David's case. He knew his friend was blameless. He knew he was humble. And I'm sure all that came into play. And he reminded Saul, he said, David's already won some battles for you. There's so many more battles for him to fight for Israel. And then out of love for his father, I had to love his father. He begged him not to commit sin by killing an innocent man. Saul was apparently enjoying just a little bit of a brief moment of sanity here because he, he swears not to kill David in verse 6. Now we're going to see shortly that that, and just a little bit, that that same moment is very short-lived. And he goes right back into the business of trying to kill David. You know, Jonathan could have developed a jealous heart toward David, but he didn't. Instead, he shows us how to avoid a jealous heart. He teaches us to combat a jealous heart Trust God's plan for your life and serve God wholeheartedly. Because when you do this, you are less likely to be worried and, more, and focused on what you think you deserve, what you think you're entitled to, and you're gonna be more focused on bringing God glory. That's our purpose, bringing God glory to his great name. 
Now we're gonna be looking at one more strategy here and it's how to avoid a jealous heart. It's another what to do. And of course, we're gonna look at David. This is Jonathan's new BFF. They're buddies now. And let's, last we saw David, he was slaying Goliath. And since then, he's been taken to Saul where he's gonna remain for a while. And from what we read in verse five, God has made him successful. And at this point, we're gonna look at David. He's kind of living his best life, it looks like. He's living with the king. Let's pick up and go back to chapter 18. And we're gonna pick up in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? Who, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Paul, Saul, and the, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king is delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, in the ear of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And he brought back their foreskins for were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. And when Saul saw this and knew that the Lord's with David and that Michael and Saul's daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commandment of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So this name was highly esteemed. Now we get to the point in chapter 18, and David has already had several run-ins. And Saul being the great guy, I mean, isn't Saul a great guy? He decides, I'm going to give David my daughter, and I'll let him marry my, my eldest daughter but it's gonna come with a price. And boy, is it a price. It's quite a proposal. He even throws in at the very first time he offers this up, he says, um, you're gonna be fighting the Lord's battles. All of a sudden, Saul has gotten all spiritual on us again. But what he's saying is definitely not what he's meaning and what he's thinking. He's thinking that every time David fights this battle, he may be one battle closer to his daughter Merib, but he's also another opportunity for David to be killed at the hands of the enemy and not by Saul. Now, the details right here in this first part with Merib aren't laid out in these verses. Apparently, David would have to fight a certain number of battles. We don't know exactly how many that would be. But, actually, but after that, he would be able to marry Merib. Now, David being true to his character in this first proposal, he turns him down. He said, I, I'm not worthy to marry 
the, the king's daughter. I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And it's important to note here that this humility that we're seeing in David, it comes when he's completely aware of the fact that he's gonna be the next king. He's gonna be replacing Saul. I mean, God said so. He's been anointed to do it. He could very well have been arrogant and entitled at this very moment. You know, I can't even imagine if I think about what it would have been like if one of my two sons would have been anointed the next leader of America when they were a teenager. It wouldn't have taken any time. No doubt, less than 30 seconds, the oil wouldn't have dripped down to their, their shoulders. And they would have turned into arrogant, entitled brats. I love my sons with all my heart, but I have no doubt that's exactly what would have happened. And guess what? The same could be said for me. It might have taken an hour, maybe not 30 seconds, but it would have happened eventually. I think we all could be in that position. Not only was David anointed by God to be the next king, but remember this? Do you remember back when, when David, before he slayed Goliath, back when the Israelites were cowering in their camps, they were scared to death of, of the Philistine giant that was mocking them day in and day out. And nobody, nobody was volunteering to, to fight Goliath. Not even Saul, who if you remember, he says he's head and shoulders above the others. This guy was big. He was massive. He could have done this too. Nobody wanted to fight Goliath. So Saul decides, I'm going to make a very generous offer and see who will step up. And he makes that offer in verse, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 25. And the king, it says, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. See, whoever killed Goliath was going to get three things. First of all, they'd have great wealth. Secondly, that great wealth is going to be tax exempt. That's amazing. Thirdly, they were going to get Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. Now, let's think about it. Who stepped up to kill Goliath? It was David. I mean, David killed Goliath. He already was entitled to marry Merib, the king's daughter. He shouldn't have had to fight one more battle to claim this reward. But guess what? He humbly declines. You know, I've wondered as I study this, did David's family ever end up with that tax-exempt wealth? I think knowing Saul, probably not. But David, instead of pridefully demanding what he had already earned, was already supposed to be his, he humbly trusted God with his future, whatever that looked like for him. And as we go into the next part, when Saul decides, hey, I've heard Michael loves David. I've got another chance to snare David. So not only did he speak to David, he has his servants talk to David and try to persuade him to accept this offer. And David again responds humbly as he says, you know, my economic status is not there. I couldn't pay what you would want for a bride price. I don't have what you need to, to pay for the bride's price for a king's daughter. Now we may clearly see this as David's humility, but Saul, he saw it as nothing more than another opportunity to kill David. He wanted him off, wiped off the face of the earth. So he sends his servants back to sweeten this deal. And they were to tell David the only bride's price is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now, it seems like just one would accomplish the plan. I don't know for sure, but Saul, 
certainly in his ridiculous request, knew that this was a great chance for David to get killed. And what he saw as an opportunity to kill David, David, a man after God's own heart, he saw an, an opportunity to glorify God's name. And this time he says, yes. He says, I'll take that challenge. And not only did David survive that battle, but he accomplished even more than Saul had requested of him. So Saul had absolutely no choice but to give Saul, or to give David his, his daughter in marriage. And we see this after this battle. David's faith produced two major things in his life. First of all, God was glorified. And to David, that was the most important thing. Secondly, God rewarded David with a wife that loved him. That is a blessing to David, a wife that loves him. And verse 28 tells us that Saul knew that the Lord was with David and that that made Saul even more afraid of David. And from that time forward, David was Saul's enemy, it says. You can be assured when there is great fear, there's a really good chance that jealousy is going to follow. Those two are really tied closely together. And David continued to fight the Lord's battles and the Lord continued to give David success. And David shows us another way to guard against jealousy. Instead of responding with anger and bitterness and entitlement to all these difficult situations and all these things that are coming to him, oppressing him in his life, he chose to focus on glorifying God. And he responded to all of these difficult things with humility and trust in God. And we can do exactly the same thing. We all face difficult situations, sometimes every single day. We have the choice to become angry and bitter and entitled. And trust me, that opens your heart up to jealousy. But we also have a choice to glorify God. We glorify God by responding to difficult situations with humility and trust God with whatever his plan is for you. And guess what? According to verse 30, David didn't live a problem-free life. Apparently, he's going to have more battles to fight. But you know, we have more battles too. And David knew that his battles were the Lord's battles. They weren't his to fight alone. And according to verse 30 also, God continued to give him success. Just like David, we're not promised a problem-free life. Look at John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Like David, we're gonna face battles. But remember, these are the Lord's battles. And they're not meant to be fought alone. Like David, God promises to fight our battles with us and for us. Now, we had a chance now to look at two what-to-dos when we're um, battling against jealousy in our heart. We saw Jonathan, we saw David. Now we're going to look at what not to do. And I'm pretty sure you know who we're going to go with on this. Of course, we're going to look at Saul. He is the prime example of what not to do when battling jealousy. Let's start back at chapter 18, verse 6. And I'm just going to read the next few verses. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of the cities of Israel dancing and singing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and, and this saying displeased him. He said, 
They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So verse 6 opens with the Israelite army returning home after defeating the Philistine army. And David had killed Goliath. And after that, the Israelite army took off running and, or the, after the Philistines and they ended up catching up with them. They defeated them and they took the spoils. And in verse six, they're returning home. The roads are lined with women and, and people just cheering for them and celebrating. It's the hero's welcome back to the city. It was a joyous occasion. And the women are singing, Saul struck down his thousand and David struck down his 10,000. And what's recorded right there is most likely a small portion of a really big song, a really long song. That's the part that stands out to Saul. Saul starts to grumble that David has been ascribed more success than the king. And that angers him. He's not just displeased, he is angry. But this, this doesn't just reveal Saul is petty and acting like a toddler. It also reveals that Saul is becoming blinded by his own jealousy of David because it causes him to be irrational. And I say this because the phrase thousand and ten thousands is a, it's called a fixed common word pair. And see, a fixed common word pair, it was frequently used, this, this coupling was used throughout the Old Testament. It was very common. Be like when my kids would say, oh, it's like a million gazillion. It was just something they would say that everybody knew was a big unknown number. But he doesn't see that. It was used in the Old Testament over and over. He should have known this. I've put a couple on your verse sheet. 97, uh, Psalm 97.1 is a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. And in Micah 6.7, it says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 of rivers of oil? And it's just a couple of many over and over in the Old Testament. So this phrase was commonly referring to a large unknown number. It was never meant to ascribe more success to one and less to the other. It means that neither Saul nor David actually killed that many Philistines. And he should have known this. He's the king of Israel. He's a wise man. He should have known that these terms were only being used to celebrate Israel's stunning victory. But he was so blinded by his own jealousy of David all he heard was them praising David more than him, and he was displeased, and he was angry. Verse 9 tells us that Saul eyed David from that day forward, and that day on. You know, the New Living Translation of the Bible states this even more clearly. It says, so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul is officially entered into a full-on battle with the green-eyed monster, and he's losing He's losing miserably. Very soon, Saul is about to push over that first domino as we see him quickly go from petty jealousy to attempted murder. It happens in like two verses. And what we see in the next few verses is he tries to throw a spear at David twice, not just once, twice. And he does it again later on in, this, in these chapters. It's a slippery slope when you allow even a seed of jealousy to take root in your heart. This reminds me of the saying, if you go outside of God's will to get something you want, you're gonna have to stay outside of God's will to keep it. 
I think Saul's case though, it's a little bit different than that. It could say, if you go outside of God's will to keep something you want, you're gonna have to go out, stay outside of God's will to keep it because that's exactly where Saul is here. His jealousy of David was fueled by his intense fear of losing something that is not even rightfully his anymore. He did not wanna lose the power that came with him being the king. He was gonna lose his kingship. And in verse 10, Saul does it. He pushes over that first domino as he tries to go David with his spear. Like I said, not once, but twice with more to come. All of Saul's attempts, of course, are futile because as God continued to make David successful, Saul's jealousy of David continues to grow. Every time David wins, Saul gets more angry. Now I want you to jump back over to 19 again, and we're going to pick up in verse 11. If you remember, the last time we were here, Jonathan had just spoke to Saul and said, don't kill David. And Saul had swore, I won't kill him, and then immediately turned around and tried to kill again. And we pick up in verse 11, it says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair on its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Shortly after Jonathan had just convinced Saul to not kill his best friend, David, Saul gets right back into the business of doing it. Even after he swore, his word has become nothing in his jealous, in his jealous mind. He doesn't care anymore. But Michael, David's wife, she gets wind of it and she crafts this plan to save David's life and, and he keeps him from being killed by Saul's servants. I think it's kind of funny. It was kind of a childish way to do it. Like something you'd see on a Three Stooges or you know, I don't know, leave it to Beaver. But it was very, very effective. So David escapes yet again, and that only serves to fuel Saul's murderous anger again. Let's continue. I'm going to start, pick up in verse um, 19 or 18. I'm going to read to the end of uh, chapter 19. Now David fled and escaped, and he, became, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all the things that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth, and it was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. He sent two more groups, go down to 22. Then he himself, he says, he goes to Ramah, and he came to the great wall, or the well that was in Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at uh, Nioth of Ramah. And he went there to Ramah and then the spirit of God came upon him also. As he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth of Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day, all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Okay, let's be honest. The end of this chapter is just a little bit strange as well. Um, 
probably not exactly what you expected to happen here, but here's kind of the cliff note version of what we're seeing here. See, David escaped down through the window after his wife saved him. He headed to Ramal where his godly and wise friend Samuel is living. See, Samuel was someone that David could always depend on and he ran to him. And from Ramal, Samuel takes um, David to Naioth. And in Naioth, that's where the, the schools for the prophets were located. So he took them there. This would be somewhere safe that they could worship, they could pray, they could seek God's wisdom. And all the other prophets would also be there and they could also pray with them, worship with them, help them as well. Saul apparently had spies everywhere though. I mean, he is the king because all of a sudden the word gets back to him that David's with Samuel. So he proceeds to send messengers. Now I think this could probably be better explained as what, soldiers? like modern day mobsters, I don't know, but he sends him out there to find David and bring him back to the palace. He ended up sending three different groups and each group when they arrived at Ramah, they were overcome by the spirit of God and began to prophesy. Now, the Hebrew translation of the word prophesy can, can mean not only to foretell future events, it can also mean to sing and pray and worship God. And most likely that's what these soldiers, messengers, whatever you wanna call them were doing. They were most likely worshiping. They weren't foretelling future events. You know, I like how um, Warren Wiersbe describes this event. He said, God protected David and Samuel not by sending an army to battle the soldiers coming for David but instead by sending his spirit to turn warriors into worshipers. Isn't our God amazing? See, instead of an army, he used his own spirit to protect David from being captured by Saul. And after these three groups of soldiers failed, Saul decides, okay, I'm gonna do this myself. I can't get anybody to do the job for me. So he heads off to Ramah. And with a little guidance along the way, he manages to get there safe and sound where he too comes face to face with the spirit of God. And he begins to worship as well. Then Saul removes his royal robes and it says he lays naked in front of Saul. When they say this, it means he's removed his robes. Anytime he would remove his royal robe, they had garments on, they were considered naked without that royal robe on them or their robe on them. So he laid there in, in, in front of Saul, he laid there for a whole day worshiping. Now you're gonna see in the coming week that God used this time to get David safely away from Saul and he flees to Gibeah where he meets up with his best bud, Jonathan. And the story goes on from there. See, Saul's life teaches us that whenever we choose our own will over God's will, we can be assured that bad things will follow. And I think it's safe to say that for Saul, that bad thing was a jealous heart that was causing him to do terrible, horrible, terrible things. We'll see in the following chapters, he doesn't take his foot off the gas in his mission to destroy David. He just pushes down harder and heads into the wind. Saul has taught us how not to handle jealousy. He's shown us and will continue to do so, as you'll see in the future, that when we go outside of God's will to get something, we're gonna have to stay out there to get it. And I'd like to suggest that being outside and living outside of God's will is a very, very dangerous place to live. That's where Saul had chosen to live at this point. And any time though, he could have made a change. He could have chose to repent. He could have stepped back into God's will. 
He could have trusted God with his future, but he didn't. And jealousy had found fertile soil in his heart and it continued to grow, not into a big old garden. I'm talking into it, overgrown, massive forest. We're all faced with the same thing. Do we seek to be in God's will or do we follow our own desires trying to get what we think we deserve, what we're entitled to? God's will can be a very difficult thing to discern. I, I understand that. I struggle with it too. But you can be assured that when you're planning truth in your heart, his will becomes clearer and discerning his will in your life becomes less and less difficult. Doing this when you're planting other stuff, his seeds of truth in your heart, it leaves very little soil for the seeds of jealousy to actually take root. At the very root of jealousy is a lack of faith in God's promise that he alone can satisfy us. But we know that's not true. We know his word tells us differently. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, if we're in his will and obedient to his commands, he promises this. He says, I'll bless you. And whatever he blesses us with, you can bet it was tailor-made for us to grow up and find great joy in Christ. That's how he wants to bless us. Knowing this helps us squelch out jealousy when we're tempted to take that bait, when we're tempted to, to push over that first domino. Saul didn't trust that God alone would satisfy him. His desire was to follow his own will, rely on his own power, instead of listening to God's word and relying on God's power. And because of this, his life did not glorify God, not in the least bit. Saul's life teaches us this. It teaches us to guard against jealousy. We must prioritize knowing God's word. We do that to discern his will and trust his divine power. See, jealousy appears on the horizon of our lives when we're not content with what God has proclaimed over us. When we're not content with what God says, this is what I have for you. Trust God's plan for your life and humbly serve him wholeheartedly. And then like Jonathan and David, you will bring glory to God's great name. Please pray with me. Father, we love you. We love your word and we want it planted so deeply in our heart that no jealousy can ever take root. Father, I pray that as we go out into this world, we look at this in a different way and stop thinking as, as though we're entitled, that what we deserve, Father, that we would wanna glorify you and serve you wholeheartedly and that that focus would take our focus off of the things around us and back on you where it's supposed to be all along. Father, we love you. We love your word. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.